So we're in this last part of John chapter 3 on page 1066. Have it open in front of you. And uh, we'll, we'll see what God is saying in his words here today. Uh, let's, let's do what we often do and pray and ask his help uh, to get it, to understand it. Let's pray. Lord, our minds are full of all sorts of things. Sometimes those things are, are good things that bring us joy. Sometimes they're, they're things that are troubling us. Sometimes we're, we're just perplexed and confused. Lord, we pray that as we spend a few moments listening to your voice, hearing you speak to us, through your written word. Lord, we pray that you'd bring us some clarity. Help us to know more of who you are and who we are, that we might live better in a relationship with you, our loving Father God. Amen. Over the summer, I watched a documentary on the life of Lionel Messi. Um, if you don't know who Lionel Messi is, he's a, an Argentinian footballer. By now, most people would agree that Messi is the best footballer of, of this generation, the, the best footballer playing football just now. Uh, it was a fascinating documentary. It talked about how, uh, if you know anything about him, he's a tiny guy. And when he was a child, they, they just thought he can't ever succeed. He's far too small to play a, a physical contact sport. And he spent a lot of his early life on uh, drugs and so on to try and encourage his, his growth. Um, but fascinating story. But the last 10 minutes of it became quite interesting because the documentary broadened out and said, well, Messi may be the greatest footballer of this generation, but who is the greatest of all time? How does Messi stack up with Pele and Maradona? No mention of George Best. Um, flawed documentary. Must have been, must have been BBC. Um, it's a common enough question. Who's the greatest? We, we always like to know in whatever field we're considering who's the greatest actor or the greatest musician or, or in this case the greatest footballer. Who is the big cheese round here that we should all look up to uh, and, and revere? And there's a bit of that going on in our passage this morning. So it's not about footballers. It's about baptizers. Uh, and if you remember what we've seen so far in John's gospel, there's a man called John who's out preaching in the Judean wilderness, a message of repentance. He says he's getting people ready for someone who's going to come after him. And he's calling people back to the living God and whenever they do that, whenever they respond, whenever they say, yes, I want to come back to the living God, he, he washes them in the Jordan River. He baptizes them. He's so much doing baptizing that he picks up this nickname, John the Baptist. So in this passage this morning, we'll learn that somebody else is baptizing too. Verse 22, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Jesus has started baptizing too. And all of a sudden, with two 
baptizers at work, John and Jesus. And as is so often the case, people needed to work out who's the greatest. An argument, verse 25, developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew or Jews over the matter of ceremonial washing. And this part of John's account, it might be hard to follow, but verse 26 sheds all the light that we need. John's disciples come to him and say, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. You can get into their heads pretty easily here. John, you've got to do something. That guy, Jesus, the guy from the north in Nazareth, the one who you'd been promoting, you'd been helping him get a bit of a start, get going in his ministry. Well, guess what? He's come down and he's baptizing. And he's starting to draw the crowd, John. People used to come to us are starting to go to him. John, you've got to do something. Jesus is becoming bigger than you. Bigger than us. John's disciples weren't happy about that. It sounds a bit weird when you put it in those terms and when you read the story backwards because uh, we have a lot of hindsight on who Jesus is and who John was. But this stuff about people wanting to be big or maybe even bigger than Jesus hasn't really gone away in 2,000 years uh, since Jesus lived. In the summer of 1998, I was living in Vancouver in Canada, and during the summer break from college, I went on a road trip with some friends down the west coast of the States. So I hired a car in Vancouver, picked up a friend in Seattle, and another friend in San Francisco, and we were heading for LA eventually. But we spent a few days in San Francisco, and during that time, we stayed in, in Berkeley. Uh, Berkeley is a university suburb, really, uh, of the city of San Francisco. If you know anything about the, the modern history of America, you might understand the role that San Francisco and Berkeley played in, in the shaping of the modern American identity. So Berkeley is a place that's full of political activists, uh, of social lobbyists, uh, of religious fanatics. It's, it's one of these melting pots of liberal ideas. You, you just don't know who you would meet uh, on an afternoon's walk through the center of Berkeley. So this particular afternoon, we had ended up playing a game of basketball. The, the three of us joined in with some people who were playing basketball on the street there. We'd had a, a good time being absolutely humiliated as Ulster people playing basketball in America are, are likely to be. But we'd had, had a bit of crack and we were just sitting in the sunshine watching the, the glory of Berkeley unfold before our eyes. And there was a moment there that stuck with me ever since. There was a guy selling or giving, I don't know, giving away books by the Reverend Sun Myung Moon. The Reverend Sun Myung Moon is the founder of the Unification Church, who you may not know under that name, but you may have heard of the Moonies. Moon died actually just in September, I think, uh, of this year. 
He was a Korean who claimed to be a new Messiah and who gathered up quite literally millions of followers uh, from around the world. So here's this guy selling or, or giving away these books. And before too long, the scene exploded. This radical hippie type of guy, he looked like he hadn't uh, seen uh, uh, soap for quite a while and, and certainly didn't know what shampoo was. He, he exploded onto this guy who, who was giving away these books. He grabbed one of the books from him and he pointed to it. And he said, he's bigger than Jesus, man. He's bigger than Jesus. And I looked at the book and right enough, on the front cover you had this thing where Sun Myung Moon took up 80% of the front cover of the book, his face. But there's a crowd standing in the background and, and Jesus is there in the crowd you know, a minor figure in this image on the front of this book. He's bigger than Jesus. It still happens today. John's disciples were quite concerned here about what was happening with Jesus, that he was getting to be bigger than John, if I can put it as crudely as that. They approached John in verse 26. They want John to raise his game. Take, take John the Baptist ministries incorporated to the next level just to make sure that it stays ahead of, of this Jesus of Nazareth movement that's beginning to gather momentum. They're keen to see how John was going to stay in the driving seat. And, and as we've already seen, John couldn't have seen it more differently. John knew who the greatest was. He knew who was the big cheese round here. He knew that he was the support act. And actually his time center stage was over. And he was going to step aside to let his hero, Jesus Christ, come and take all the limelight. John told his disciples, actually, guys... This is what I've been doing all along. Verse 28, you yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Christ, but the one sent ahead of him. And of course, we've already seen that in John's gospel. He's always been pointing to Jesus. So chapter 1, verse 23, he says, I'm the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for God. Verse 27 of chapter 1, he talks about Jesus. He's the one who comes after me the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. For John, it's always been about Jesus. From day one. And in verse 29, he uses a metaphor here of a bridal party. And I just want to check that we know who the players are in this uh, and that we're not lost in it. He talks about three people, the bride, the bridegroom, and the bridegroom's friend. The disciples are upset because Jesus appears to be taking people away from John. And John says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. Now, think of what we know of how the, the New Testament talks about the church. Isn't it often referred to as the bride of Christ? So John's saying here that the church, the people that God's drawing to himself, they belong to Jesus. 
They're the bride and he's the bridegroom. And then John uses the other character to explain his role in it all. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it's now complete. Fellas, this isn't a bad moment for me. These people going over to Jesus Christ. I'm loving this. This is what I've always wanted. This is what I've hoped for and prayed for and worked for. People are going to Jesus and I think that's brilliant. I'm as happy as a best man is when he stands here at the front of the church and when his, his friend, the groom, turns and his bride comes up the aisle to greet him on his wedding day. That's how I feel about these people going after Jesus. He must become greater. And I must become less. Folks, this has to be the view of any Christian leader or, or any Christian person for that matter. Once we get it about Jesus, once we understand who he is, that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that he's the Messiah, God's chosen King, he is the greatest. And for the rest of our lives, we say he must become greater. And I must become less. This is one of the values I've tried to bring to the ministry that I give here at Kirkpatrick Memorial and have done these last nine years. When I came into Presbyterian ministry, it was a culture where ministers were dressing in a particular way, where they wanted to be addressed in a particular way, where they were publishing their degrees after their name anytime they got the chance, where they had privileged car parking spaces right beside the front door of the church. Thankfully, we don't have a car park, so that covers a multitude of sins. I, I do still want my sticker on the bike rack somewhere so that I can park my bike there. Prominence seems more important to many church leaders than the spirit of John the Baptist that says he's got to be the big cheese and I'm happy to be less. I, I want that spirit, the spirit that John declares here. He must become greater and I must become less. As well as me personally trying to live out some of those values, I long to see them remain our corporate values here in the church. We don't publish the names of our preachers before our services here in Kirkpatrick Memorial because we don't want it to ever become about a person or the person. More important is to, to know that we gather in the presence of the living God, to be his people, to hear his word, 
to, to be together and encourage each other. This value has actually been tested in a very tangible way the last few months. Let me explain. We decided a while ago that we wanted to do something with the front space of our church. And if you've been around, you'll know uh, that we did that work this summertime. So there was a bit of a discussion about how a reconfigured front of the church should end up looking. And there was a temptation to follow the lead of so many other worshipping communities to clear the decks here and to put the band in the front and the centre to make sure that nothing gets in the road of their performance. And that's just the problem, isn't it? Performance. Churches becoming venues where we go to see celebrity worship leaders or celebrity preachers or celebrity whatever else is on offer. When we made plans for our refurbishment, I was pretty stubborn in my resistance against all of that. And so we have here at the front of the church the same stuff that we always had. Front and center, we have a communion table. Because we believe that the biggest part of our story is something to do with Jesus. Body broken, blood shed. And by God's grace, we can participate in that and know salvation and new life. Nothing bigger is ever going to happen here than that. And we have a baptismal font because the greatest joy we can know is to baptize either an infant or a believing adult into the family of God. Our community has nothing more better to celebrate than that. And I'm standing here at another piece of furniture, if you like, a teaching lectern because we believe Jesus' words. He said that we don't live on bread alone, but we live on, on God's word as we hear what God has on his heart and in his mind for us. In our corporate life, we try to live out these values that it's not about us, but that it's always and it's going to remain always about him. He must become greater and we that's all of us. Happy to become less so that his glory shines. One last comment on this. I, I want to take this opportunity to thank the people who share leadership here at Kirkpatrick Memorial for the, the ways in which they've understood this those who are on our worship leading team, those who preach here occasionally, our, our musicians and our singers who participate in our worship here. I, I want to thank them all for contributing to our worshiping life without distracting us to them, as if it were about any individual and not about the Lord. I want to thank the leaders in our organizations who increasingly are, are talking about wanting to be a, a Christ-centered environment 
for our children and young people to find God. God bless you all and keep you uh, with that heart in you. In the remaining verses of the chapter, John goes on to elaborate this claim that Jesus must become greater and he must become less. He tells us why. Why is it such a big deal that Jesus is at the front and the center and that the rest of us fall away in comparison? It's because of who Jesus is. And John makes four cumulative points, a cumulative case with four points. First, he says Jesus is great because he's from heaven. He's greater than anyone else for that reason. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Second, John says it's because Jesus is from heaven and he can tell us what heaven's like. Verse 32, he testifies to what he's seen and heard. Third, Jesus is the greatest because he comes from God and he speaks God's words in the power of the Spirit. Look at verse 34. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. But most of all, Jesus is the greatest because of what John says about him in verse 35. Look at this. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. God the Father loves Jesus. He thinks he's great. And he's given Jesus everything. He's made him the greatest and he's given him the world as his inheritance. It's because John's so clear about who Jesus is and his identity that he leaves us in no doubt. Nothing matters more for any one of us than how we respond to Jesus Christ. Look at verses 32 and 33. He says an incredible thing that I don't have time to elaborate today. He says that whenever we accept Jesus Christ, we make God out to be true, a teller of truth, someone who acts in truth. And I think what's implied there is that when we reject God's son, we make God out to be a liar. We say that no, Jesus isn't the greatest. He's not the fulcrum of human existence. I am or somebody else is. And John nails it in verse 36. He makes our response to Jesus Christ a matter of life and death. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. Folks, everything John's saying here, John the Baptist, is cumulative of what we've read in these first three chapters. John says this because of everything that we've already learned about Jesus. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is, he's the only one who can forgive us 
He's the only one who can rescue us from God's appropriate judgment on our rebellion against him. But he's also God's Messiah, God's chosen king. If you're not his subject, you're his enemy. When we get Jesus, when we understand just how fundamental he is in the way God is running this universe, then we live in the light. When we live in the light of him, then we have life. We enter into a friendship with the living God. When we don't get that, when we choose not to, to accept Jesus on those terms, that he's the greatest, when we keep ourselves or someone else as the greatest, we remain God's enemies. I hope you understand that. That's what John says here in the closing verse of our passage this morning. And it begs a question, I think, of any person who takes Jesus Christ seriously and, and gets to know about him, who he is. Have I accepted that Jesus Christ is the greatest? Have I made him the center of my life? And if you haven't, and I know a few of my sermons recently have finished like this. If you haven't, I'm urging you to do it today. I'm urging you to do that today. To recognize that he must become greater in any one of our lives. And we must humble ourselves and become less. Let's pray. Father God, we have seen in this um, recorded incident of Jesus and John, uh, we've seen something of human nature writ large. Lord, it's, it's a common thing for any of us. Those of us who have leadership, it's common for us to want to be the center of attention, even when that means drawing attention from you. But Lord, for each one of us, we know that it's easy for us to, to keep ourselves the center of our lives and to keep Jesus a smaller figure in the background. Lord, we pray for each one of us, leaders or not, that we just begin to see it. That your spirit would show us how incredibly beautiful and fundamental Jesus Christ is in your plans for the world. If our lives don't revolve around him, then we're living out of step with the way things really are. We're living outside of your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you'd work in our hearts by your spirit, each one of us, whether we've known Jesus for years and decades or whether we're very new to all of this. Let us leave this place this morning with Jesus becoming much greater in our minds.
and ourselves willing to be less. Less so that he might become more in us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.